You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. Right now, we're experiencing a moment that will go down in the history books. For the third time ever, a president has faced an impeachment trial in the Senate. But what makes this time so unique is that President Trump is up for re-election this year, and the trial comes at a crucial time for the 2020 race, just before primaries. So what's really going on, and how does this all impact the 2020 election? We're talking with political science professor Seth Maskett. He worked in the Clinton administration in the White House Office of Correspondence, and he's currently writing a book about the 2020 Democratic race and lessons learned from the 2016 loss. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So we have a lot to unpack, but let's just start right away with the impeachment trial. What moment has stood out to you the most so far? What we've seen has actually been pretty fascinating, where senators get to pose questions um, to both uh, House managers and uh, the president's counsel. Um, and, you know, some of the senators have uh, done some clever things. They've, uh, you know, essentially forced uh, the reading of certain, uh, you know, unfortunate quotes, either by the president or by the president's critics into the record. Um, and you've seen uh, the chief justice have to read some of those. Um, but you've also seen, you know, some really fascinating on-the-spot uh, attempts to um, uh, spin and, and come up with uh, new legal theories uh, by the House managers and, and, and by the White House counsel. The president's counsel more or less proposed the idea that it doesn't matter um, if the president did these things has, he's, he's been impeached for um, and, and accused of, is that they're basically, they're okay, um, and anything the president does that he believes is in service of the nation is basically unimpeachable. That, that's a pretty staggering legal theory, um, So and they seem to be walking it back, but it's uh, it, it was certainly fascinating to watch that unfold. Mm-hmm. And the senators are kind of being described as the jurors in this situation, which you know, jurors in a regular court case are unbiased. Sometimes they're sequestered from the media if it's a big trial like this. That's obviously not the case here. So what's their role in all of this? I mean, that's actually really fascinating because people will alternately describe this as a trial and a purely political process. And it really has aspects of both. It's it's like no other trial that exists. Um, uh, in the sense that these are all elected officials. These are senators. And they don't actually function as a Senate during this process. They're like a separate body uh, legally uh, constituted as just an impeachment trial. Um, and so they, but they obviously are elected officials. So they have their own uh, set of political incentives involved here. Um, but also they do take a pledge to judge things impartially and to try and process information and to listen. And they're, they're supposed to be quiet. Um, and, and so this is, it's, it's really kind of a novel process that um, you see it functioning both as a trial um, and as a political process. And it's really interesting to watch that unfold. And, and they really are playing roles both as jurors and as judges in this situation. Right. And then we also have the Chief Justice Roberts coming over to preside on the trial. And you had a really interesting tweet at the beginning of all of this about him. And you said, this is not a criticism of the Chief Justice, but it's fascinating that he's functioning as the parliamentary leader here and has less experience than that of the greenest senator in the chamber. Can you just talk about his role in all this? Yeah, it was interesting to watch him come in and and start this proceeding where, as far as I know, he's never run a legislative chamber before. 
Um, and so he is playing some of that parliamentary role, uh, you know, deciding who gets to speak when and how to uh, how to begin the chamber and how to adjourn it. Um, and so that's that's obviously a new role for him. Um, but also, it's it's good to remember this is the Senate not functioning as the Senate right now. There is, you know, senators do afford some deference to uh, Mitch McConnell as the majority leader, but. Technically, while they're in this trial, McConnell has no more of a voice than anyone else in the Senate, and and um, they're really uh, you know leaving things up to the judgment of uh, the Chief Justice. And a lot of Republicans believe that the Ukraine aid controversy never even really rose to the level of impeachment. So, what do you say to people who argue that this entire trial is just a waste of time? <sighs> They're talking about things like abuse of power. Um, you know, if, if you look at the writings of uh, some of the Constitution's founders, particularly Alexander Hamilton, um, they talk in the Federalist Papers and elsewhere about, um, you know, what they referred to at the time as, as high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, although they, they used other terms for it, where they were essentially talking about um, a president doing things that are not necessarily criminal acts. Um, but that are things that by the nature of being president, you shouldn't be allowed to do. You know, they were clearly concerned about things like executive overreach. They were concerned about abuses of power by uh, the King of England at the time. And they were concerned about uh, an executive doing those things here. And, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be a situation like if, if a president committed a minor crime, such as a parking violation or something like that, that's not something we would generally see as an impeachable act, even right. if it is technically criminal. Um, but a, a president could do things that are essentially abusive of liberty, ab abusive of a representative democracy, um, overstepping his bounds, uh, you know, threatening the, um, uh, the separation of powers uh, that, keeps a, that keeps the democracy running, um, that were theoretically removable. Um, would, would make someone removable from power. Um, Hamilton was particularly worried about um, at that time, uh, uh, you know, a president essentially being the pawn of a foreign power. You know, they were worried about um, European powers attempting to um, control or manipulate American elections and uh, a president essentially working for another country. Um, that is really what's in play here. Um, those are the issues that are being talked about now. You know, essentially, if, if these are the issues that um, aren't considered impeachable or, you know, at least discussable along those lines, then really there's no purpose for impeachment at all. Compared to Clinton's impeachment trial, Trump's trial is really just kind of a blink of an eye. What does that say to you? Um, it would be easy to portray that as a rush to some kind of judgment, um, as a way to get it over with quickly, um, which is, I, I think, something Republicans are vulnerable on. Um, one thing you know, if you were to go back to the, uh, the the Clinton impeachment trial in 1999, um, you know, that was certainly portrayed by Democrats at the time as, as something of a farce. Um, but at the same time, senators who were working on that felt very good about the procedure. Um, you had the minority and majority leader in the Senate come together over a series of meetings prior to that trial, hammer out um, what they thought was a, a realistic and, and fair uh, set of procedures. The Senate actually met secretly to uh, discuss and work out the rules for it and agreed on a 100-0 to zero vote um, that those were the rules to proceed on. 
Um, this was a that was a very partisan procedure, and that was a very partisan time in our nation's history. But the fact that they were able to come together with complete unanimity and, and agree on the rules was, was a pretty stunning moment. Mm-hmm. We're nothing like that today. Right. And we were also curious, too, because you have some D.C. insider knowledge from working in the Clinton administration um, in the White House Office of Correspondence. And you left before the impeachment trial. But we're just curious on the inside, um, from your perspective, what do you think goes on? Like, do things really get put on the back burner? How much does the trial take over the daily workflow? Um yeah, that's a good question. So, I yeah, I, I was I was there for three years, but it was prior to the impeachment. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I had some good friends who were still there during that time. And, um, you know, it was for that White House uh, and that president, uh, you know, the Clinton administration was very determined to put on a public face that they were not being distracted by impeachment, that they could, uh, you know, conduct their, their regular work. Um, uh, and sort of set that on the side, um, but yes, it's 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 obsessive. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to describe it as anything other than mm-hmm. that. Um, it's all the media want to talk about. Um, you know, all the work that you're doing, um, even if it's not directly about the impeachment, it, that's in the background of everyone's uh, minds and everyone's um, political thought processes. Um, you know, to the extent that an administration needs to work with members of Congress to get things done. Obviously, that's going to have an effect. Um, it makes it that much harder to work with people of the other party. Um, it makes it, uh, you know, it, it sort of clouds the things you're doing with your own party. Um, and it's just, you know, that was essentially a year of, uh, of an eight-year presidency mm-hmm. um, that was devoted to almost nothing but defending the president. And, you know, it, it, it sort of, um, it exacts a toll on the president's defenders as well. Um, you know, there were, you know, in addition to people in Congress, in addition to all the cabinet officers, you know, there's a, there's a huge network of interest groups and um, other, other leaders out there who are allies of a president and uh, want to protect that president. But, you know, if they feel like they're always protecting the president um, from things that he did, um, that uh, th- that takes a toll, and they just get tired of doing it, um, and you know it, it can cause some some frictions in uh, with, within the greater party network, and that that was true uh, back then during the Clinton administration. I, I think that's very much true today of the Trump administration. What does this impeachment trial mean for the presidency moving forward as a whole? And do you think that impeachment is becoming normalized? Um, I mean. We have, uh, you know, three or four cases of presidential impeachments now, uh, whether or not you count uh, Richard Nixon, right. who, who resigned before that moved forward. Um, so we, we don't have that many data points here, although it's interesting, you know, three of those four have happened in my lifetime. So mm-hmm. potentially it's becoming more uh, a more common thing. Um, one thing that we're sort of seeing you know, in, in state politics is an increase in the number of recall elections, which are similar to impeachments in that regard. Um, there's more attempts to remove governors, remove state legislators, um, you know, something like half of those cases that have occurred over the last century have happened just in the last decade. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely more of a sense of using fairly dramatic procedures, removing people from office as part of uh, the normal political process, and, you know, a, a, an attempt to try and regularize removing people from office as a way for 
um, a party to um, either get back at an executive or to to exert some control over the process. So, you know, potentially we'll, we're seeing an increase. One of the things we're learning, not just about this particular impeachment trial, but about, you know, a lot of the things that have gone on in the last few years is how important the concept of legitimacy is. Um, you know, not just the rituals uh, and procedures that the government performs, but the idea that um, uh, people believe in them. Um, and some of those things are being put to the test right now. Um, you know, the fact that you had, uh, we've had, you know, over 20 years, we've had two presidential elections in which, you know, the person who gets the most votes does not become the president. Um, obviously, that's perfectly permissible within the Constitution. That, that's how the elections are run. But if you get to a point where people stop believing that elections are fair, that they accurately represent the country, um, that's potentially a dangerous area. And similarly, if people come to believe that um, an impeachment trial is not adequately a trial, if it's not actually considering real evidence, if it was essentially, um, if the outcome was baked in before it even began, um, it, that, that does tend to undermine people's sense of fairness. It undermines, uh, you know, people's sort of uh, belief in uh, the democratic institutions uh, that, that we run under. And that's, you know, and it's not like our political system is proceeding from a, a real base of, of high legitimacy right now. There's already a, a good deal of cynicism among the population. That's not a great place for um, a democracy to find itself if people actually are, are um, you know, questioning uh, the whole legitimate underpinnings of it. So what are the ramifications for the senators who are up for re-election, especially the senators that voted not to bring forward witnesses? What are the ramifications for them for their re-election campaign? Um, there aren't too many people that this will make a big difference for, um, but there are a handful of, of senators who this is, this will be a tough situation for them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, our own, uh, Republican Senator, uh, Cory right. Gardner, um, is facing a difficult reelection. Um, I, I'm sure he's aware that, you know, he's, he's one of the most endangered Republican incumbents in the country. Um, if his, you know, th- there's been some early polling suggesting that if, if his Democratic opponent is John Hickenlooper, is one of the candidates running, you know, he could lose by double digits. And uh, so, you know, in theory, given that this is a moderate to left-leaning state and that Donald Trump is very unpopular here, you would think Gardner would be looking for some opportunities to distance himself mm-hmm. from Donald Trump. He, for the most part, has not done that. Um, but it, it, it's a tricky path for him, and, and this could be costly in, for him in the fall. You could see a similar set of calculations with, say, Susan Collins in Maine, who also faces a difficult re-election. Um, she is always looking for opportunities to kind of signal that she's, she's pursuing a more moderate path than other Republicans. President Trump wanted to move forward with the State of the Union address so he could share his vision for the next four years. So we have a U.S. president delivering this address at the tail end of the impeachment trial on a re-election year. How is this moment going to go down in history? Um, yeah, that's kind of fascinating. That uh, You know, in some ways, Clinton in uh, 1999 is a parallel who, who gave uh, his State of the Union address uh, in the shadow of uh, his impeachment trial. Of course, mm-hmm. that, that was not a re-election year right. for him. Um, for, you know... For Clinton, it was an opportunity to sound like a normal president again. 
right, uh, to try and pivot the conversation away from impeachment talk and just, you know, sound like he was doing the things that presidents do in the State of Union address. Um, this is an interesting moment for Trump in that the State of the Union address for him is, is one of the most normal things he does. Like, if you were to just watch him during those speeches, you would think, this is a pretty typical president. Um, he works from a prepared text. He doesn't ad-lib very much. Um, he sets an agenda for the things he's trying to pass. Um, and, you know, he sounds like a, you know, a fairly typical Republican modern president there. Um, so in theory, this is a chance for him to, you know, sort of move away from, um, from some of the impeachment conversation, um, from conversation about Ukraine, from conversation about Joe Biden, um, and, you know, and, and simply sound, you know, essentially reset the conversation. We'll see if he's up for that. Um, it's, you know, it, it's tends to be, that tends not to be his style. Um, in most of the rest of the year, he, he, does, he likes to really focus on the things that he's focused on at that time, and he, you know, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be interested in trying to change the conversation when he's uh, annoyed about a topic. But um, the stadium address is potentially an opportunity for him to do that. Mm -hmm. So let's play out this scenario. Trump is impeached, but he's not removed from office, and now he's up for re-election. What are the pros and cons of this position for him going into the 2020 election? Well, assuming uh, the Senate votes to acquit him mm -hmm. on, on the two counts for which he's been impeached, um, you know, he'll immediately claim that as a victory. Right. Um, this, he'll call this a ratification of what he's been trying to do, that he's been completely vindicated. Um, you know, that won't necessarily be an easy sell across the country, but it's certainly something he'll, he'll claim. Uh, he'll get some support in Republican circles for that. I doubt that really changes um, his public opinion standings, mm -hmm. um, his approval ratings or anything like that. I mean, if anything, his approval ratings have been um, remarkably st steady. Um, you know, he's been hovering between, say, 40 and 43 percent for nearly his entire presidency. And uh, I'd say expectations of his acquittal are already pretty baked into that. Right. Um, but he'll claim it as a victory. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats will run against it. They'll they'll be very critical of Republicans who voted to acquit him and to not allow witnesses if that's what ends up happening. Um, and the sorts of things that he was um, impeached for, you know, essentially reaching out to a foreign nation and, and seeking their help in investigating uh, his possible opponent. Um, that will be seen as, at least by the Trump campaign, as kind of business as usual right. um, from that point on. So uh, I'd be curious to see what... Um, what the Democratic campaigns choose to do about that. Mm -hmm. um, if they essentially see that as, oh, this is now this is now how we're doing things, and the Biden campaign reaches out to, uh, who knows, Britain or France right. or anyone else for, for their help in investigating uh, Trump, I, I rather doubt that that will happen. Um, but it would certainly be, uh, be a talking point. But, you know, my guess is we don't necessarily see that different uh, an election outcome than we otherwise would have. Um, you still have a, um, you know, you still have a president who is probably less popular than he should be given the strengths in the economy, uh, given relative 
peace uh, between the U.S. and, and uh, other countries, um, you know, which makes for, but, you know, also an incumbent running for re-election um, in a reasonably strong economy, that makes for a, a competitive re-election scenario. And then for Democrats, we're just coming off of the Russia investigation that really didn't yield the results that they wanted. And now this impeachment trial, do you think voters will see this as a big loss for Democrats? Um, you know, again, I think the expectations for this are pretty baked in. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there are very many people that expect or ever expected the Senate to actually remove him from power. Mm -hmm. um, I think many Democrats just simply saw this as something that the Demo that Democrats in Congress simply couldn't ignore. Right. Um, and so they, they had to move forward with this. In some ways, it wouldn't shock me if they were to impeach him again. Really? Um, uh, you know, if, if he, you know, continues doing some of these things. Do you think that just gives his base more of a reason to call witch hunt? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll, he'll be doing that um, regardless. Right. Um, they might not attempt to do it this year, but yeah. if he wins re-election, they could very well... Uh, you know, a, a Democratic House might very well seek uh, an impeachment again in later years, uh, depending on what sort of actions he, he seems to be doing. Right. And another really fascinating aspect of this impeachment trial um, is the four senators who are running for president, the four Democratic senators, um, and they had to pause their campaign two weeks before the Iowa caucuses. And I think the New York Times article that I read described it best. They said, it's the fourth quarter, the game is close, and you're benched. So put this into perspective for us how serious this is in the political world. Um, I mean, that's that's a fascinating wrinkle on this whole situation. Um, you know, I, I think if you just ask people ahead of time, well, what does this do to a, a candidate that they essentially can't be in Iowa and they can't be in New Hampshire in the, in the last few weeks before the, uh, bef before the caucus and primary there, um, you'd have probably thought it would really hurt their campaign. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders' numbers has been going up mm -hmm. since he's been benched. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily clear which direction that goes. Uh, the campaigns, as I understand it, have been... Uh, very creative in uh, getting lots of surrogates out there. Um, they have uh, very, you know, for the most part, very well-developed um, uh, field organizing teams out there working on their ground game. Um, so the message is out there. Um, the candidates are getting there when they can, you know, essentially like one day a week at this right. point. Um, and it's not like, uh, you know, caucus goers in Iowa or, or primary voters in New Hampshire aren't familiar with who these candidates are. They've been barnstorming there for a year or two now at this point. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's certainly had an effect, but it, it definitely, definitely hasn't killed off their game. And there's a big conversation about electability. And you hear some voters say, I'm just going to pick the candidate that aligns with me, my beliefs the best. But then some say, I'm just going to pick whoever can beat Donald Trump. What do you think the risks are in using that strategy? Some of the risks are we're not very good at knowing who that most electable candidate is uh, without having an election to determine it. Um, people make, I mean, the, and we have evidence in political science that, yes, some candidates will do better in, in an election than others. Um, there's a reasonable amount of evidence that more moderate candidates tend to get more votes than more ideologically extreme candidates, that you know, if, if you don't vote with your party 100% of the time, you'll tend to do a little bit better. Um, but people also make a lot of uh, assumptions that um, a man is more electable than a woman. 
um, without really much much data to back that up. Um, people assume that a, a white candidate is more electable than a non-white without a lot of evidence to back that up. Um, so it can be hard to separate people's, um, you know, real concerns about who is more electable than, uh, than someone else with their own kind of biases and suppositions um, about what makes someone more electable. So it's, um, you know, basically the problem is, um, you know, I, I think as Recline put it best, you know, when you're talking about electability, you're not talking about your own preferences. You're talking about your impressions of what other people's impressions are. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's several steps removed from right. an actual voting decision. And people's biases can really get worked into that. And in some ways, um, uh, you know, you cause the effect uh, you hoped that, that wouldn't occur. That is, um, if you assume that women won't get the votes, then parties don't nominate women and they end up not getting elected um, and, you know, without there ever being ever, you know, a real bias built into the electorate in the first place. Um, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. So you're writing a book on all of this, and you're looking at the lessons learned in 2016 and how that applies to 2020. So what's the most interesting thing that you've discovered so far? So the book is due out in the uh, beginning of September 2020. Okay. And what I'm really focusing on in the book is the so-called invisible primary. Um, that is the period from the end of the 2016 election to right before the Iowa caucuses of this year. Um, so how the party, you know, tried to reach decisions before voters actually weighed in. So I'm trying to understand uh, the lessons that people within the Democratic Party drew from the 2016 election. Um, I've done a lot of interviews over the last few years with um, political activists, people within the parties, campaign uh, workers and others um, to get a sense of why they think Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. And... Uh, you know, perhaps one of the most interesting things is, is the total lack of agreement on really? just why that election came out as it did. Uh, people have no idea. And y you can actually see this, uh, you know, in part of the study I've been looking at is, is looking at um, media narratives, you know, how journalists, political journalists describe what happened after that election. Usually they start off in, on election day with a lot of different theories about why the election came out as it did. But after a few weeks or a few months, they've sort of converged on a, a, just a few narratives about why the election happened. Um, the media couldn't agree either. Um, a year later, two years later, they were still as confused as they were on election day. And this has been true of people within the Democratic Party as well. You have some of them who are convinced they had a flawed candidate, um, that there were problems with Hillary Clinton. People just didn't trust her or whatever. Um, she wasn't a great campaigner. And that if they pick a different type of candidate, uh, they, they would have won that election. Some believe that the candidate was just fine, but it was, it was a bad campaign effort. Um, they, used, they had bad data. They were campaigning in the wrong places. And if they'd done those things differently, it would have come out differently. Um, some believe that the messaging was wrong. They were, they were using sort of the wrong themes. They were emphasizing the wrong sorts of, uh, of voters. Um, some believe it had that they essentially did nothing wrong as a party, but it was things like uh, Russian interference or uh, FBI Director James Comey's uh, interventions at the end of October in 2016, um, or maybe it was Bernie Sanders not being sufficiently supportive. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ideas that go into this, and really the most interesting thing is they're no closer to agreement now than they were four years ago or three years ago about why that election came as it did. And if you can't 
agree on the narrative, regardless of what's correct. I'm setting that aside. Right. Um, but if you if there isn't sort of a common story among Democrats about uh, you know why that election happened as it did, it's hard to agree on what the path forward is. Um, and you see this in a lot of different aspects of the party. You know, some of them believe, oh, well, our nomination system should be more open or more closed, and um, you know, so they they did some reforms to the superdelegate system. Um, you know, some are trying different campaign approaches or saying, well, we clearly need to nominate a man or some are like, no, we clearly need to nominate a woman or a person of color. Um, all this has made it harder for them to figure out what the party needs to do, what sort of candidate needs to nominate. Um, and it, it just makes it harder for them to, to reach collective decisions. There's so much talk about political division and all the unprecedented turns that came with the Trump presidency. And so as a political science professor, how do you put into perspective this moment in U.S. politics? It's challenging. Um, so yeah, it was funny. I took a um, I was on sabbatical in, in much of 2017, and I came back to the classroom and found that uh, I pretty much had to rebuild my courses from scratch. Really? You know, I, I, I teach classes on political parties, on campaigns and elections. And I'm like, I need to incorporate 2016 now. And I, I really kind of have to rebuild everything from the ground up. And what was sort of most interesting in that process is trying to figure out, OK, what what still holds? What is still um, true, basically, of mm -hmm. the way voters behave, of the way campaigns behave, um, of the way parties function. Um, and some of that is, is, is still very much there. But also, you know, just Donald Trump's presence in the political system, um, his unexpected nomination by the Republicans in 2016, and then his unexpected victory that fall. Um, you know, some of that required some rethinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, I always make a point of explaining, or at least trying to explain any you know, any, any conversation coming up with students, um, you know, here's what we know that's, that's still true, that's more or less timeless um, about the way parties pick candidates and about the way uh, campaigns advertise and, and where they choose to, you know, devote their efforts. Um, but here's some things that seem to be new. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think that the rules have been completely rewritten, uh, but there are some things that are new about our political system, yeah. and it's it's important to keep focusing on those. And only time will tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. For more information on Seth Maskett's upcoming book, Learning from Loss, or to read his blog, Mischiefs of Faction, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Be sure to subscribe and check back for new episodes every other Tuesday. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, Aaron Pendergast mixes our sound, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.